0: It's a confusing case rife with controversies, ranging from false confessions, to only white guys getting off the hook, to defense lawyers running away right before trial. All we know for sure is that two guys' DNA was definitely on the pants. This is the true crime story of the Carey sisters, who wanted to change the world someday, and the longtime suspect who definitely didn't murder them. Or did he? Hi friends, I'm Katie and this is Katie Does Crime. Thank you all so much for joining me today and a huge shout out to all of my Patreon patrons. Today's case came as a suggestion in the comments, so a special thank you for that to Leslie. The facts are pretty straightforward when you first take a look at them. It was April 4th, 1991 at 11.25 PM when sisters Julie and Robin Carey took their visiting cousin, 19-year-old Thomas Cummins, to the Mississippi River. The sisters were both students at the University of Missouri at St. Louis, and Julie was an English major, so it's fitting that they wanted to show their cousin the poem they'd graffitied onto the local bridge. Meanwhile, Reginald Clemens, Marlon Gray, Daniel Winfrey, and Antonio Richardson, ranging in age from 15 to 23, met up at a mutual friend's house to drink beer and smoke a little jazz cabbage, if you know what I mean. They also decided to go hang out at the bridge, called the Chain of Rocks Bridge, that used to allow cars to travel over the Mississippi between Illinois and Missouri before it closed. And I don't mean to sound like a nerd here and take you away from your murder, but it's actually a really cool bridge. The National Park Service says it was named after a series of rocky rapids nearby called the Chain of Rocks that made the Mississippi River dangerous to navigate by boat. A dam was built nearby in the 1960s to send in enough water to cover the rock ledges, so the river looks much less treacherous today. But back in 1929, when the Chain of Rocks bridge opened, it had this serious 22-degree bend right in the middle to help captains align with the current and slip in between the bridge's piers and the water intake towers. I think the result is pretty beautiful. Anyway, the boys tried to smoke a jay on the bridge, but their devil's lettuce was too wet to light up so they started walking back toward their car on the Missouri side of the bridge. Along the way, they ran into the Carey sisters and their cousin, and the two groups chatted about how the Kurt Russell movie Escape from New York was filmed up there. One of the sisters gave one of the guys a cigarette. One of the guys taught the sisters and their cousin that you could climb over the side of the bridge, walk along the metal platform underneath, and then pop back up through a manhole in the middle of the bridge. It kind of sounds like a fun little prank if you don't know a murder's coming. The two groups parted and continued on in opposite directions toward their graffiti poem and their car. But according to the youngest member of their foursome, with nothing dry to smoke, Reginald Clemens suggested that they go rob the sisters and their cousin. One of the guys said, yeah, I feel like hurting somebody. One of the other guys was also interested in some assault of a sexual nature. They walked back toward the other end of the bridge. One of the guys lost his nerve along the way but Clemens apparently saw to it that he felt threatened enough to go through with it. Condoms were passed around, and when the foursome caught up with the Carey sisters, they reportedly traded the women back and forth while their cousin was forced to lie face down on the ground and listen to their struggles and screams. Then the guys prodded everyone to go down through the manhole cover to the metal platform below and pushed Julie and then Robin into the freezing water. The water level lowers and raises, but it was at least a 48-foot drop into the icy river. Their cousin was robbed of his wallet, watch, cash, and keys, and then told to jump in after them. He spotted his cousin Julie and told her to swim, but she dragged them both under the rough water as she grabbed onto him. He resurfaced and was able to make it to a nearby embankment, but her lifeless body was found downstream three weeks later. Her sister Robin was never seen again. Julie was only 20 years old and Robin was only 19. A plaque on the bridge inscribed with one of Julie's poems remembers them. Their cousin, Thomas Cummins, was initially considered a suspect because he was supposedly found completely dry and with his hair still perfectly parted when he was able to flag down a man in a truck and get help calling the police. Now, the actual Missouri Supreme Court documents say that the truck driver observed that his hair was wet and unkempt and he was crying but I guess it makes the case against the cousin more compelling if we believe that he was mysteriously dry. The police made up a story where he had been making suggestive advances toward his own cousin when Julie accidentally fell into the water trying to escape him, and then Robin jumped in to save her and they both succumbed to the current. At first, the police didn't believe that the other four young men even existed. I mean, if they were unarmed, the police couldn't believe that the cousin couldn't have simply fought them off to save his cousins. The cops questioned him multiple times until, luckily for him, the evidence led in another direction. The cousin was later released and his arrest expunged due to lack of evidence, but he filed a police brutality lawsuit in response to their interrogation techniques of twisting his neck and landing at least 10 hard blows to the back of his head. He was awarded $150,000. But it was a flashlight that ultimately led to the conviction of the four other guys on the bridge that night. See, a few days earlier, one of the boys had stolen a flashlight engraved with the name I Horn from a police officer's home, and then he left it on the bridge that night. A woman saw a news story about the flashlight evidence and called in a tip that led to the arrest of 16-year-old Antonio Richardson, and during his interrogation, he implicated Reginald Clemens, 19, and Marlon Gray, 23, in the crime. The fourth member of the group, Daniel Winfrey, was only 15 years old at the time, but told the same story the cousin had about meeting on the bridge, the polite conversation between the two groups, and the decision to go back and hurt the two sisters. He said that the three older men took turns with the young women in the most horrific way. This 15-year-old immediately took a deal, testifying against the other three guys in exchange for 30 years in prison. The other three were all found guilty and sentenced to death and Gray died by lethal injection in 2005 after declining his last meal. He maintained his innocence until the end and said, in his very poetic final words, I go forward now on wings built by the love and support of my family and friends. I go with a peace of mind that comes from never having taken a human life. I forgive those who have hardened their hearts to the truth, and I pray they ask forgiveness for they know not what they do. This is not a death. It is a lynching. Another in the group, Antonio Richardson, later had his sentence commuted to life in prison without parole. But it was Reginald Clemens who would be talked about for the next decade and beyond. In 2002, a district court judge said his death sentence was unconstitutional because of the jury selection process. Several jurors had been improperly excluded, leaving him with a substantially white jury. Only two black jurors out of 12 in a city where 49% of the population is African American. However, this judgment was later overturned because Clemens's lawyers hadn't properly made objections about it at the original trial and didn't include the claims in their motion for a new trial. It's kind of a technicality, but it was enough that his death sentence was reinstated. In 2009, Clemens's execution date was scheduled, but then a special master judge was appointed by the state Supreme Court to look into the case again at a new hearing. The special master determined that once again, Clemens didn't present enough evidence to establish his innocence, but that there were problems with the case. I saw that some internet armchair sleuths take issue with Clemens having to prove his innocence when, of course, in the U.S. legal system, the burden of proof rests with the prosecution. They say Clemens should have been presumed innocent, not the other way around. But the thing is that the phrase is innocent until proven guilty, and officially, he was proven guilty at his first trial. But in 2015, the Missouri Supreme Court vacated his conviction based on the Special Master's findings and declared that a new trial could be held. But to avoid going to trial, Clemens pleaded guilty to five counts, including two counts of second-degree murder. DNA from multiple men that indicated sexual activity was found on the pants Marlon Gray wore during the crime and could not exclude both Gray and Clemens as matches. Although Julie Carey's body was too decomposed when it was found for an assault kit to detect anything, female DNA extracted from a used condom found on the bridge matched female DNA found on Gray's boxers and pants. I also want to add that the watch stolen from the sister's cousin that night was later found hidden in a house where Gray had visited, making it even more likely that the two groups did have a run-in on the bridge. Clemens was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences in prison, in addition to the 15 years he already had for attacking a prison employee in 2007. The circuit attorney in the case said Clemens is a monster to put the victims' families through this decades long ordeal, knowing he was guilty of these unspeakable crimes all along. Many well meaning people were sucked into his false claims of innocence, and he didn't care about them either. He is truly one of the worst criminals I've ever encountered in my lifetime. And it's true that a lot of well-meaning people and organizations have been on Reggie Clemens' side through these past two decades. In a 2012 article about him, the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, said that Missouri has a legacy of disrespect for Black lives. Amnesty International said that this case has long highlighted many of the flaws in the U.S. death penalty system. And in 2006, even actor Danny Glover joined the cause and spoke in favor of a pardon at the Justice for Reggie Clemens campaign rally. So here are the issues with the arrest and trial. Clemens has never confessed to being the primary murderer. And although he was found guilty of killing Julie and Robin Carey, there was no physical evidence tying him to it aside from that possible DNA evidence that couldn't exclude him. And no one ever testified that he was the one who pushed them into the river. Should an accomplice be punished in the same way as the main perpetrator? Clemens said the court used the charges of assault and robbery to inflame the jury's emotions. At the trial, the sister's cousin and the youngest boy in the group that was with Clemens were the star witnesses for the prosecution. The only problem with this is that the cousin was originally implicated in the murder. I mean, the cops believed strongly enough that he was guilty that they were willing to give him $150,000 worth of a beating to get the truth out of him. So it was definitely in his best interest to make sure someone else was blamed. And the 15-year-old who got the plea bargain was promised he could avoid the death penalty by pointing to other guys. He served his time and then was granted parole all the way back in 2007. The other issue is that both of these guys were white and the other three guys in the case, you know, the ones who all got the death penalty, were black. And that's raised a lot of hackles. Not to mention that 130 people have been exonerated from death row in the US, and 20 people on death row in Missouri where this took place were later found to be not guilty of their crimes. When someone's life is on the line, you kinda wanna be a little bit sure you have the right guy. And the state refused to give Clemens free counsel because they were already tied up with one of the other guys in his group facing trial. So his family had to pay half of their yearly salary to hire a private husband and wife team of lawyers. However, it turns out that the two were going through a divorce at the time and the wife up and moved across the country before the trial. It would be laughable if it wasn't the rest of someone's life they were putting at risk. And the huge glaring elephant in the room is that Clemens says his original confession of assault was literally beaten out of him. He claims the police punched him, made his lip bleed, hit him in the chest, cut him under the eye, and told him what to admit to to make it stop. He said that when he agreed to talk, it was just to keep them from killing him. They started to tape his confession, but he interrupted in the middle to say that he wanted to remain silent and was being forced to talk. So they threw away that tape and beat him some more. He doesn't even really remember what he said on the second tape. He was so hazy and battered at the time. That tape was his confession to the assault that sentenced him to death. Two days later, he told St. Louis Police's internal affairs that he was subjected to police brutality and the judge who saw him at his first hearing ordered that he be sent to the emergency room for examination. But the court later determined that there was no way to tell when the injuries had happened and no proof that Clemens' confession was necessarily coerced. However, the special master later appointed to the case found that there was a bail investigator who interviewed Clemens in the hours following his police interrogation and did see the damage to his face. But when this man nonchalantly reported the injuries in his usual paperwork, he was summoned to talk to two supervisors and then the prosecutor in the case who all tried to convince him that he hadn't seen what he'd seen. He said, I think they don't want to, nobody wants to talk about what really happened to this gentleman when he was being interviewed by the police. The special master found that this important information had been altered on the bail man's paperwork and never properly shown to Clemens's original lawyers. And that my friends is a Brady violation. This is when Clemens' conviction was vacated, and he was possibly going to face a new trial, but decided to confess instead. In a letter to his supporters, Clemens wrote that entering a guilty plea for the assault meant he didn't need to admit to a murder that he didn't commit. The plea was for lesser charges that will possibly allow him to be paroled someday, and he didn't want to put his family and the Carey sisters' family through another trial. He didn't trust the court system and the corrupt police department to bring anyone justice. The thing that's hard for me in this case is reading about how brutal and just plain sad the deaths of Julie and Robin Carey were. Wrongfully convicting someone tears at the delicate fabric of our justice system, and the idea of someone having their confession beaten out of them is just heinous to me. But in the Supreme Court case from 2015, the stated facts from the 15-year-old who confessed say that Clemens knew his friend, to be precise, it was his cousin, was going to push the girls into the water, and he didn't stop them. That his friend hit one of the girls in the face and Clemens didn't stop him. That two of the guys stripped the girls who were conscious and screaming during all of this and he didn't stop them. And when one of the girls tried to grab someone's wrist to keep from falling over the side of the bridge and he punched her, Clemens didn't stop him. Even if Reginald Clemens didn't do the actual pushing that night, Reading about these horrors makes me rethink my earlier question about whether or not accomplices should be punished like the main perpetrator. And when he was asked under oath about the events of that night, he invoked the Fifth Amendment and his right to not incriminate himself 29 out of 32 times. Is it true, Mr. Clemens, that the girls were fighting while they were being stripped and raped? Under advice of counsel, I plead the Fifth. Is it true, Mr. Clemens, that one of the girls told the other one not to fight and not to resist you raping them? Under the advice of counsel, I plead the fifth. Did you rape both girls or only one girl? Under the advice of counsel, I plead the fifth. Clemens was a teenager back in 1991, but with the wisdom of a grown man, he now says that he feels for the family of Julie and Robin Carey. He says he's not remorseful because he's not guilty, but that he thinks about the girls a lot. He once said, It's sad that they're not here to see the first Black president, because from what I've read about them, that's something that they would definitely want to see. I've read that they were against the death penalty, and they would be fighting against a lot of the wrongs that's going on in the world. And isn't it ironic that the Puerto Rican Lebanese victims in a case marred by accusations of racism were taking their cousin to see their poem about the horrors of racism that night? They had signed it with a peace sign. The young women worked with groups on HIV and AIDS and joined charity walks for the homeless. They donated food and gifts to the needy around the holidays. They stood up for kids at school who were being bullied. Julie's personal motto was, "'Who says you can't change the world?' Indeed. This case was a roller coaster, and at the end of it, I'm still like, wait, so Clemens confessed, retracted his confession because he says it was coerced, confessed again more than a decade later, but still says he's innocent and just confessed to keep the victim's families from having to go through another trial? Like, wouldn't the Carey family rather see the right person in jail? The Carey family, for their part, accept Clemens's confession of guilt. So what do you think? Was he guilty of murder or just of assault? Did the police department's alleged bad actions muddy the water too much to know for sure? Thank you for tuning into my podcast episode. I'm just a true crime fan like you are, and I really appreciate you taking a chance on me. Please subscribe and tell a friend if you like spending this time together. You can also find me on YouTube in the flesh by searching Katie Does Crime.